Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, and thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Today we're going to tell you a little bit about my visit to the White House last week, and also a big record for America Can We Talk, the China tariffs, America first, and unseating the globalists. And last today we'll talk about Papadopoulos entrapment piece, that piece of the Spygate puzzle, and why all these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hello again, and thank you so very much for joining me on America Can We Talk. Well, as you saw, if you watched this show, you saw last Friday, this past Friday, um, that I, or Thursday rather, that I had a video up of myself in Washington. I had the great opportunity to visit the White House last Thursday, and I want to tell you just a little bit about it. To start with, I love going to Washington. I went to law school there. I love that city. I don't love the creepiness of politics, but I love the what it represents about a, the headquarters of freedom in America and headquarters really of, of the world, a place where freedom is uh, battled for every day. But last Thursday, I had the opportunity to go inside the White House and uh, just through some longtime friends, had an opportunity to do uh, kind of a back you know, uh, behind the scenes tour uh, and and see up close some of the things that we see on the news every day. And I wanted to just share a little bit about my impressions of that visit. Um, first, I want to mention that, for example, uh, you know, if you have in your life visited the palaces uh, in Europe, all over the world, the places they build for uh, the, you know, the ruling class, you see these massive structures and enormous castles. But really, I was really struck by the West Wing, how it's not really very big at all. It was kind of a surprising realization. It is grand, it is noble, it is lovely, but it's not grandiose, it's not huge. It's very, uh, it's laid out in a very practical way and uh, got to zip around inside the West Wing and, and see some of the things I wanna tell you about. But that was my first impression. It really seemed a lot like the place which what it should seem like in a country where we are founded on liberty, where we the people are hold the power, where we choose our government, and our government is supposed to be governing with the consent of the governed and governing not as a ruling elite class, but really it was much more symbolic of a of a um, just a headquarters on the streets very quickly outside, as you often see outside on Pennsylvania Avenue outside the White House. Lots of protesters, lots of pro-America people, uh, various religions hold uh, signs up trying to get people to, I guess, to convert to their religion. They have a guy who claims he's been there every day for 27 years holding up a sign opposed to uh, nuclear weapons. You had a guy playing bagpipes. I'm not sure what his mission was, but people were dropping money into his case. Point is, the streets are filled with the people. It was a very, you know, this is the people's house, not a, uh, didn't have that standoffish feel you might feel in, in some other countries. Second thing is, inside the West Wing, it was really uh, quite extraordinary. The, um, for example, the press room, you know, you always see uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders come and take questions. It is a tiny little room. It is not big at all. I mean, you think from the way it appears on television, it was big, grand. It's not at all. It's a very much a working space feel. Uh, when I went in there, the president was not there, but there were numerous members of the press there. 
people sitting down, taking notes, conversing. It had a very uh, a buzz and upbeat feel to it. Um, we got to go, uh, we just got a, a really extraordinary tour uh, inside the uh, West Wing, but got to see the colonnade where you often see the president walking. In fact, he has to walk that way uh, from the Oval Office to get over to the other part of the building. So saw the colonnade, saw the Rose Garden. Um, we actually saw the area where the um, Marine One lands. And as you often see, the Marine One lands and the president comes in, he's in a room that has all these yellow chairs. We went in that room and there were actually, a, a, there was a stage set up outside the yellow chaired room um, where near where the president's um, helicopter lands. And that was being set up to greet the Boston Red Sox, which is fun and exciting. They were not there at that time. Um, we just walked all around the um, the uh, West Wing and actually all the whole White House really got the kind of insider's tour of the White House. It is a um, it's just a very noble place. And I have to tell you that I did have some conversations with people, different people working on various policies. And my overall impression is there is an earnest effort inside this White House to represent the people, to move things forward for the American people. It did not have a feel of the ruling elite, which I regularly talk about on this show. It had a feeling of a place there, but people are in Washington trying very hard to put into place the policies and values that President Trump ran on. And so it was just a, it was just a fun, extraordinary, um, very special um, event. I have a few pictures I can put up later just to, it was, it was just a very extraordinary thing to get to be there. And I um, appreciated that, appreciated the invitation of being in Washington. I also want to mention that this show, America Can We Talk, hit a big uh, landmark last week. And I want to share that with you. But before I do that, I will say this. I do this show, I've been doing it for four and a half years. I have never been paid anything for doing this show. I do it out of love of America. I do it out of my passionate desire to inspire Americans to realize that we live in the most precious country in all of human history. We live in a country where we have, because of the founders' ideas, rights that are recognized in our founding documents that are ours because we set up the country to be this way. I do this show to inspire people to appreciate that more deeply, to recognize that the many of the founding values of America are very deeply under threat in this country. I don't mean from foreign enemies, although we have plenty of those too. I mean internally. I mean the political values, the, the uh, principles upon which our country was based are very much under siege in this world today, in this country, in Washington, D.C. And I want to inspire people to appreciate our country enough to fight for them. If you like what you hear in the show and you like the arguments I give you about how to speak up for our country, I would so appreciate if you consider donating to this show. Donate is at my website, americacanwetalk.org. On the homepage, you can hit the donate button. Any help is just, it's the only pay I get to do this show, which I do four days a week and have done for four and a half years. I did it once a week uh, prior to this this year. But I do this show to inspire people to love America. And so now that I've told you you could support our show if you'd like, I want to tell you about our big record we hit. So America Can We Talk, I'm just thrilled to tell you that according to our detailed Facebook data, in the last month, America Can We Talk has reached over 1 million Americans. Yahoo, over 1 million Americans. The exact number, 1.106641. So over 
1.1 million people. And these people come to the Facebook page to hear the stories we talk about, to understand the arguments I'm conveying to you. And I just love doing it. And I'm excited and thrilled to have each of you that you listen. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling your friends about this show. Thank you for sharing it. The show also goes out on YouTube Live. And the YouTube audience and YouTube subscribers and YouTube comments are also growing by leaps and bounds. I'm very grateful for that. And I just, I actually attribute that growth to the reality that what I talk about on this show matters so very much. And more and more people in this country are starting to realize that it takes the country, it takes every generation in this country standing up and speaking up for America in order to preserve the country. And that, my friends, is today's first five. Now I want to turn and talk about the big, big news story of the day. A lot of people are talking about the ongoing battle, uh, the tariffs um, issue, and President Trump's negotiations with China. And it's a really remarkable time. President Trump um, and his team have been negotiating with China, uh, trying to reach a trade deal, and they're now in a, um, we're in a, we're gone to battle stations a little bit. America has um, raised um, tariffs because they've been unable to get China to a trade deal. What I want to talk about, and, and again, I tie every story to preserving this precious country, which has to mean preserving our economy, preserving free markets, preserving jobs for Americans. But I want to talk about the difference between the President Trump, America first mindset, and the mindset that prevailed prior to his arrival in Washington. So I want to start, there's a clip that was became very famous. President Obama, in, in a town hall, I think it was in January 2016, President Obama uh, did a town hall. He was asked the question, so it's January 2016, he's ending, you know, he's in his last year, Obama's in his last year of his presidency, He's in a town hall and he is taking questions and someone asks essentially, gee, you know, President Trump is coming here or <laughs> President Trump, candidate Trump is coming here and he's talking a lot about bringing jobs back. Here was President Obama had to say. For those folks who've lost their job right now because a plant went down to Mexico, you know, that isn't going to make you feel better. And so what we have to do is to make sure that folks are trained for the jobs that are coming in now because some of those jobs of the past are just not going to come back. And when somebody says, like the person you just mentioned, who I'm not going to advertise for, that he's going to bring all these jobs back. Well, how exactly are you going to do that? What are you going to do? There's, the, there's no answer to it. He just says, well, I'm going, I'm going to negotiate a better deal. Well, how... What, how exactly are you going to negotiate that? What magic wand do you have? And usually the answer is he doesn't have an answer. Okay, I'm here to tell you today, President Trump has an answer. And actually, it's not just negotiating skill. It's not just tenacity or bravery. It's a monumental shift in the mindset of the political class in Washington that is allowing President Trump, as motivating President Trump, to move forward in his negotiations with China. What you heard President then President Obama saying essentially was, the jobs will never come back. We're not going to have jobs in this country, or at least not those jobs. We may find other jobs. We may have to retrain people. But the idea of America being a manufacturing powerhouse 
was something he was mocking with his magic wand comment. On top of that, there was a mindset in the negotiations with all sorts of countries around the world during the Obama era and even prior to that, that essentially was, it's okay if America always has the short end of the stick. It's okay if our trade deals aren't fair. Because after all, America's prosperous, we have a lot of money, we can always take the rotten end of the deal. There was an unspoken mindset in President Obama and literally for decades before that, the idea that America should not really assert itself and demand that trade deals be fair. So what President Obama, mocking the magic, the magic wand comment, it wasn't just that Trump is going to do be a tougher negotiator because he has a history of negotiating, but it was a change in mindset that says, we are going to make trade deals, and frankly, all policy in America, around the idea of reasserting that America has the right to fair trade deals, America has the right to have a prosperous and good economy because we have the right kind of economy. We have an economy based on freedom. That was another aspect of the left-wing mindset represented by President Obama and others that could not celebrate and, and embrace the truth that freedom, free markets are the reason, and, and all sorts of other founding values of our country are the reason that America was the then one superpower that America had the strongest economy, the most bustling economy, the best, the best prosperity. This bothers the left-wing mindset that America should have more prosperity, more abundance, more jobs, more just, just be a strong country. Left-wingers can't stand that mindset because it requires them to admit that freedoms and free markets matter. And left-wingers can not tolerate that. They have worked so long with this moral equivalency of all ideas, moral equivalency of every single economic idea. Who are we as Americans to say free markets and capitalism are better than socialism or, or communism? Left-wingers cannot admit that. But the fact is, America has been the abundant source of jobs and prosperity and good in this country because of free markets. When President Trump came along, and said, we're going to bring jobs back. That seemed impossible to the left-wing mindset because they could not embrace the idea, they can't deal with the truth, that free markets and freedom actually create abundance, prosperity for everyone. The left-wing mindset had wiped out the middle class. The wide swath of Rust Belt, you know, heart and soul Americans were happy to work in good factory jobs, happy to work in manufacturing. Their jobs were gone. And President Obama's answer was, well, we're going to retrain you to do something else. And, but because the manufacturing will be sent over someplace forever and will never come back. Now, obviously, companies in America have to deal with the fact that there are workforces in many countries around the world that can be paid lower wages, that companies do move their manufacturing abroad because they are able to hire, to produce their products for less money because they have cheaper labor. And so 
the the idea that the economic reality of that does not though have to mean that companies cannot be inspired to bring jobs back to America. So this is what I'm going to hone in now on China and what uh, President Trump is doing with China. I want to turn actually to a clip. There was a, a great segment on one of the Fox shows uh, this week and it included Larry Kudlow. And Larry Kudlow was there um, in a uh, discussion with um, What's his name? Chris Wallace, uh, Larry Kudlow being um, Trump's White House economic advisor. And he was explaining. So we have this in two clips. This is the first clip. He's talking about the stalemate we've reached with China right now. Here's Larry Kudlow. So, look, the situation for us from our standpoint, um, we were moving well, constructive talks. And I still think that's the case. We're going to continue the talks, as the president suggested uh, in his tweet on Friday. But the problem is. Uh, Two weeks ago in China, there was backtracking by the Chinese, and we covered the same ground with Liu He this uh, past week, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer and Secretary Mnuchin. You can't forget this. This is a huge deal, the broadest scope and scale, anything the two countries have ever had before. But we have to get through a lot of issues. For many years, China trade was unfair, non-reciprocal unbalanced in many cases unlawful and so we have to correct those and one of the sticking points right now is we would like to see these corrections in an agreement which is codified by law in china not just a state council announcement we need to see something much clearer and until we do we have to keep our tariffs on that's part of the enforcement process as far as we're concerned and as the president has said Things that seem to be taking too long, and we can't accept any backtracking. We are representing the United States, the economy, farmers, auto workers, manufacturers. These are crucial parts to this discussion. So we want to be as sure as we can be. We don't think the Chinese have come far enough. We'll wait and see. The talks will continue, and I will say this is a G20 meeting in Japan uh, toward the end of June next month. Um, the chances that President uh, Trump and uh, President Xi will get together at that meeting are probably pretty good. I want to hit several points about what he had to say. That again, Larry Kudlow, White House economic advisor. The things he kind of listed off very quickly: the idea that there has been a trade and imbalance, some things that China's been doing for years are unlawful, unfair. This is what part of it isn't exactly draining the swamp, but it is resetting the course for America that President Trump is doing. Those kinds of tr- not just trade imbalance, but the China uh, theft of our intellectual property and all sorts of things we'll hear Larry Kudlow talk about in a moment. All of that was simply tolerated by Obama, President Obama, and even before that, with this concept, again, it's okay if America gets a short end of the stick. It's okay if we're not really being treated fairly in America, because after all, look how great we are, look how abundant we are. Well, America was actually suffering from that, from those kinds of trade uh, policies because the middle class, the working people of America were, uh, were suffering. The jobs were gone. There were, the manufacturing was gone here. And, you know, it led to another political point I'm going to make in a moment, then go back to what Larry Kudlow had to say, one other thing. But one political point about this is that when you have a president, not President Trump, but President Obama and previous presidents, aware of the trade imbalance. I'm going to show you a chart in a moment how extreme the trade imbalance was with China. When you have a 
big government left-wing mindset in the White House, the ever-growing, expanding welfare state in the White House, the a White House and a, a mindset on the American left that works to create more big government programs, more dependency, that mindset benefits when jobs leave America, when more and more people have to rely on the government for housing, healthcare, education, just food on the table. When more and more Americans are weak, when our economy is weak, when not enough Americans have jobs in a robust, you know, jobs-based economy, the American left benefits because they are driven to, they try to create more dependency, they want more dependency. Dependency on government programs is a breeding ground for Democrat voters of the future. This is why, among the many reasons, you did not see a firmness, a deliberate fighting back against unfair trade deals, even when you could see what was happening to our economy. There wasn't that resourcefulness, that determination, we're going to fix this problem that you're seeing. Um, that you weren't seeing that under Obama, you are seeing under President Trump. Now I want to have a quick, quick clip from Kudlow about what it is exactly that China's been doing that's so unfair. Again, Larry Kudlow, Chief Economic Advisor of the President. Here's the, the, the fundamental things. We, I mean, we've said this many times. Um, intellectual property theft has to be fixed. Uh, forced technology transfer and ownership of American companies has to be fixed. Uh, cyber interventions have to be fixed. Tariff and non-tariff barriers have to be fixed. And there have to be very, very strong enforcement provisions. Okay. Uh, some of the Chinese officials have said, both in Beijing and here with the Mr. Liu He, that this is, the agreement was too unbalanced, okay, and had to be, uh, no, the relationship has been too unbalanced. And because of these problems of unfair and sometimes uh, uh, unlawful trading practices, we have to have a very strong agreement to correct, to right these wrongs before we will be satisfied. All right, I want Okay, I love that. He just went through the list of things that China has done that we have just come to tolerate and accept negotiating with them on behalf of America. One of the point I love what he said in the previous clip, Larry Kudlow was saying that they were going to, it's a way of making teeth in this deal. They were insisting that China put into its law the commitments that the negotiators were making at the negotiation, rather than just having the negotiators say, oh yeah, don't worry, we're going to do this, we'll fix this. He, they're trying to force it into law. Now, still, it's China, and you know, China is pretty much ruled by their Communist Party, so putting it in law doesn't give as much teeth in China as it would if that were to happen in America. But the point is that this is a, you know, China's complaining this is an unfair deal, but because they, China, making more concessions, the truth is it's been unfair for decades. And, and President Trump is really saying, we're going to support the American worker, the American economy. I have a quick chart to put up. It's very hard. I know it's hard to read these things when you're, um, you know, on the screen, but just briefly to show you, uh, and you can maybe do a, a screen grab if you'd like of this, but this is basically showing the astonishing difference in trade, America versus China. And the other aspect of this, you can leave this, this well, make this point, leave that up, but China is also, China uses its government money to supplement manufacturers so that you in America, if China buys a car from America, 
whatever the car costs, that is what the manufacturer gets paid. In China, because the government supplements the manufacturer, the manufacturer can offer the car for less money than it actually costs to produce. Another, this is one of the things that Larry Cuddle alluded to, but another thing, it just makes it ridiculously unfair. Very quick things in the trade balance. Uh, President Trump is, he's going after this on Twitter too, but he's basically saying, look, uh, for these are 2018 numbers. The United States imported 539 billion, 539 billion in goods from China in 2018, uh, and only exported to China 120 billion in goods to China in the same time period. So we ex- export 120 billion, and we import 539 billion. And so China's making a lot of money off America. And this really interesting kind of political battle too, because we may be negotiating with China right now and getting sideways with them, but the fact is China needs to have American goods and China needs to sell its goods to America. China cannot just say, okay, fine, we're not going to trade with you anymore. So that, I, if you get a copy of that, you can see from that chart all the different ca- manufacturing categories, how much advantage China has had over America in, in the trade negotiations. So, you know, Trump has been tweeting away about this. Uh, I, I could put some of those tweets up, but I want to make a couple other points before I run out of time on this topic. One point is that this is an interestingly almost bipartisan issue. Chuck Schumer the minority leader in the U.S. Senate, the Democrat senator from New York, just endlessly, if you read his Twitter feed, endlessly needling President Trump. But even he had a tweet out. This is Senator Democrat, Senator Chuck Schumer, tweeting out in response to President Trump, who's been tweeting away about, we're gonna get to a good deal. Schumer saying, hang tough on China. President real Donald Trump, don't back down. Strength is the only way to win with China. So even Schumer is agreeing that we have to be tough with China. He sees the problem. Now Schumer, in fact, you know he's got his own issues and the Democrats do because they need to be supporting labor unions. And labor unions, of course, don't like when American jobs are leaving and going to foreign countries. So the labor union pressures on the Democrats. But it's a really interesting political thing. I want to turn to two more, three more points about this. Um, the whole negotiation process we're in with China. One is that President Trump is insisting on fairness and being criticized for not supporting free trade. The kind of high-minded intellectual economists are saying, uh, Trump is out of line because you know we're supposed to support, support free trade and he's not doing that. Folks, as Larry Kudlow is pointing out, we didn't, before Trump came along, we didn't have free trade. We had trade dominated by China's unfairness. Number two, Trump is not putting tariffs on, and people are very worried about the, the history of the Smoot-Hawley tariffs. We talked about that many times in the show that, that decades ago, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs were put on in an effort to try to help us, America, and have our manufacturing move out of the uh, Great Depression. And they actually, uh, economically, economically, are proven to have extended the Depression. But the Smoot-Hawley tariffs were all about protectionism. And that is not the motive President Trump has. He is demanding fairness. He is saying, you can't say free trade if it's not fair, if you're cheating in the variety of ways that Larry Kudlow listed, 
which you talked about in the show before. So the Smoot-Hawley tariff hand-wringing by some of the high-minded economists is out of line. I think there are a lot of economists who just are kind of leery of President Trump, and they think he's not an intellectual economist like they are, and so he may not realize he could do harm to the economy. You know, President Trump, he may not be uh, you know, a PhD economist, but he's a business guy. He's seen how business functions. He understands what happens uh, in international trade. He understands what happens with tariffs. He is putting the pressure on China because China has had an extraordinary advantage over America in its trade deal for decades. And Trump has finally said, no, actually, if you want free trade, we're going to go with fair. And fair has to start with, you're going to stop taking the intellectual property. America's intellectual property. You're not going to have the forced transfer of of um, intellectual property. You're not going to have the cyber spying, which Trump, which China is, you know, famous for and very dangerous. We're going to stop the cyber spying. We're not going to have all these unfair. So he's really Trump is pushing to make it a reasonable, actual. Um, I don't know if you can precisely say free trade, but he's being more free trade pushing for that more than these high-minded economists who are wringing their hands over the Trump doesn't understand the Smoot-Hawley situation. So there are a lot of people, and there also will be, and it is already occurring today, of course, there has been a, uh, you know, a dip in the economy, a dip in the stock market. You have people fretting about, well, you know, see what happens now. The, the producers are getting nervous. The businesses are getting nervous because look what's happening. We have, you know, we're, we're, we're sideways with China now. President Trump did a big increase in tariffs on them on Friday. They they uh, responded and did the same thing in kind to us today. And you can get into tariff wars. And I think both sides are aware of that. But President Trump is sending the signal that I really mean it. Things are going to change. We're not going to have America be the short end of the stick in all of our trade deals. And a little piece that I didn't get in, Kudlow had a lot of great remarks, couldn't get them all in. But he made the point that China may be misunderstanding, misinterpreting American politics. I think he's alluding to this um, thought some have had, well, you know, maybe Trump will lose in 2020, and then we'll get Biden in, who will, of course, give away the farm. And they're in China thinking, can we hold out till 2020 and try and, you know, try to get a better deal out of Biden? You know, I, I don't know if uh, China can stand to do that. But I love that, uh, that President Trump is really standing up for America in this whole China trade deal. I think we have to not worry ourselves in this immediate, all these economists are fretting. And one, in fact, there was a data out saying essentially that the impact of the, the tariff war we're now in would wipe out at least 25% of the benefit of the tax cuts. Okay, you know, maybe we'll have, there, there will be short-term costs. If we're going to get tough with China, insist on the right deal, we're going to have short-term costs, harm to our stock market. We're going to have people paying more for some goods that they're going to buy in America coming from China because the tariff is added to them. We're going to have China perhaps buying less from us. So we have our manufacturers hurt by that. Obviously, you know, the economy is all interconnected, and then so there will be impacts. But the larger idea of reasserting America's economic prominence in the world, our preeminence in the world, our insistence on fairness, our insistence on having our American economy not be weighted down by ridiculous trade imbalance when the imbalance is driven by unfairness by our trading partners. This is its all to the good. It may take us a while to get there, but it's all to the good in my view. Last thing on this China trade deal for today, and that is this. Somebody was uh, bringing out the uh, 
reminding people about right shortly after President Trump took office, after he was sworn in in January 2017, he did a big trip uh, to other Asian countries and he uh, and countries in that part of the world. And he talked at the time about those tri that trip being about trade. And so he talked about trade with India, trade with Japan. And it now appears that part of the thinking, because everyone has known, or people who are savvy in business, have known for decades that China is a bad deal with us, a bad negotiating deal, and that we just kind of are stuck. And so Pre and President Trump knew this, obviously, before he even took office. So it appears now that some of the efforts that President Trump was making early in his first year of presidency to go to Japan, to go to India and other countries and, and work on the trade deals with them those countries can replace China as a supplier of things that we in America need to import if we're going to get sideways with China for very long. I don't urge, I'm not rooting to have us be sideways with China for a long time. Um, I do think that the other harm to America that has flowed from this horrific trade imbalance with China is because, and many economists argue this, China has used the money it's made off of America to have a stronger economy and therefore a stronger country, a stronger uh, you know, financial system, stronger monetary system, stronger military, because they made more money in trade with America than they should have. We have helped China grow, and as we talked about a couple days ago, China is now determined to push its 5G system in the world, determined to be, China is on the path to being the one superpower in the world, wants to replace America. And our bad trade deals have helped China be more financially strong. So it's another reason to bring those trade deals back into line with what is more fair, more right, and more good. So in closing, I'll say, I think in this segment, I think uh, President Trump really did, uh, in early on in his presidency, realize he was going to run into some battles with China in trying to get on to move our trade deals to a more fair thing, to move them to a more reasonable um, and fair uh, trade with them. And we may end up with problems with that. We may end up having to buy more from India, buy more from uh, Japan, the two countries they mentioned, and other countries to really show China, you know, you can't starve us out. We're going to buy things elsewhere. So I, you know, I guess in closing this whole segment, I just think it's vital to keep in mind how much um, of the past trade policy in this country was not really rooted in what's the best thing for America, but it was kind of rooted in, given America is the strong, uh, bustling, prosperous, uh, you know, one world or, you know, the biggest economy in the world, the biggest power in the world, you know, we can always take it on the chin. We can always surrender. We can always get a, a deal that's not really fair to us. And really it caught up with America after decades of doing that in that the economy we emerged with when President Trump became president, we had too many people not working, too many people not able to find jobs, too many American companies deciding it's just easier to move abroad. So this kind of, the whole Trump, make America great again, America first thing, has some really consequential impact. Uh, it, it's, he is expressing those values. He is pursuing that dream of America first and making America great again by getting tough on China, which ultimately means better economy in America, jobs brought back here, the middle class of America restored with real jobs, 
with jobs that allow them to be self-reliant, to be able to care for their families, put food on the table, and everything else you do when you actually have a job and income. So this has just been an extraordinary time to think about the intertwining of the economy and trade and just the, the welfare and goodness of the American people. Thrilled with what President Trump is doing on this China negotiation. And last thing for today, I want to turn entirely and talk about, you know, there's so much going on. There's so much going on in Washington with the Mueller investigation. And it occurred to me, you know, I, I've done this story so many times in this show and talked about different aspects of it. And the story is so big. Even if I had a three-hour show, talk nonstop for three hours, which I could do. But even if I had that, you could not pull all the pieces in to explain the magnitude of the wrongdoing, the magnitude of the hoax cooked up against President Trump with inside the FBI, inside the FBI. But I decided today what might really help uh, kind of lay, all, lay it all out and, and help make it clearer for people to understand, and that is this. I want to focus on George Papadopoulos. George Papadopoulos, uh, you've heard that name in connection with the whole Spygate, Mueller, you know, dossier, all the whole story. I want to just tell you and just lay out for you just what the hoax attack, the, the coup attempt against President Trump beginning during the campaign, the effort within inside the FBI to destroy President Trump, to find a basis to destroy him, to, to destroy candidate Trump, and then once he became president, the ongoing effort, the vicious malice engaged in by people inside the FBI. Just, I'm gonna tell you George Papadopoulos' story. It's kind of a two-fold story, it could be more than two, I'm gonna settle for two. To start with, um, I just as a quick thing, in October of 2018, so now that's whatever that is, six months ago, uh, George Papadopoulos gave an interview and he said, I think I was framed. I think I was set up. And it appears he was. So going back, to April of 2016, so this is two-part. This is George Papadopoulos pre the Mueller investigation and then George Papadopoulos after the Mueller investigation began. I'm gonna do a quickie summary of the first part. April 2016, George Papadopoulos meets with some guy, Mifsud, M-I-F-S-U-D, in London. He hears a rumor at that meeting that somebody in Russia might have the Hillary Clinton emails. This Mifsud appears to have been a CIA or federal government operative. It wasn't a happenstance meeting. It appears to have been a set up meeting. Next, George Papadopoulos, so that's in April 2016. You get to May of 2016, Papadopoulos meets with an Australian guy, Alexander Downer, in London. He, Papadopoulos, repeats this story about, yeah, there's some story about Hillary Clinton in the email, the Russian having uh, the emails. So he repeats that. Alexander Downer makes a report of this meeting with Papadopoulos in which he essentially writes down, I have received invocation, uh, indications from a representative of a, that, I'm going to say it exactly how, Papa, how Alexander Downer wrote it. Papadopoulos suggested to a representative of a foreign government that the Trump campaign had received indications from the Russian government that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information that would be damaging to Hillary Clinton. So they've set this up. 
Papadopoulos, first with Mifsud, then with Downer. Who, so Papadopoulos is essentially saying that he was not, he was set up by, his term is, Western intelligence agencies. He's pointing finger at the Brits and the Australians and the Americans. So that, WikiLeaks does his big dump. Uh, that information uh, of the Mr. Downer's summary of the meeting with Papadopoulos gets sent to Washington. Peter Strzok, FBI agent, uh, who receives this from Alexander Downer, he said he used Downer's words that Downer said that Papadopoulos said that he thought the Russians had Hillary Clinton's emails to launch Operation Crossfire. It goes on and on, but to basically make the point that Papadopoulos was a relatively minor player trying to be uh, help the um, the team, the uh, Clinton, the um, Trump team in their campaign. So he's already been set up by the appears the FBI. But the big story of today that I want to make sure you understand and understand how serious it is is this. So Papadopoulos ends up meeting with um, this um, guy, Stephen Halper. Stephen Halper, um, also being a known FBI informant, um, he's a Cambridge professor. He's apparently like 70 years old and an enormously overweight person. Stephen Halper meets with him, um, brings with him a supposed research assistant, uh, a woman named Azra Turk, now being called the blonde bombshell, very shapely, revealing clothing, you know, trying to get him to talk and say, so both Turk and Halper are now our known FBI informants. But now I want to turn to then what has happened. So that was all them trying to set him up. But what I want to get at what the FBI did to Papadopoulos um, and what is now where, uh, where he, Papadopoulos, is now saying, even though he pled guilty to something like not giving a full disclosure of some meeting, you know, a ridiculous little minor charge, I want to explain to you how determined the FBI was to set up some guy, Papadopoulos, ultimately, of course, to try to turn him against Trump and get him uh, in, in such deep legal trouble that he would do anything to get out of it. So Papadopoulos, uh, it appears, was the victim of a DOJ-FBI entrapment operation within 2017 after the special counsel was appointed. So Papadopoulos in 2017 goes to Greece with his wife, Simona. And in Greece, he's approached by a CIA-FBI operative named Charles Tawil. T-A-W-I-L, Charles Tawil, allegedly, so he's a, he's a, you know, he's an FBI, uh, CIA known operative, not known to Papadopoulos. So Papadopoulos is asked by him, hey, you know, you want to become help uh, with an energy development project, and which is his business. He goes, yeah, sure. So he's, he goes to Israel with this guy, George Tawil, and in June in Israel, he, this Tawil guy allegedly is hiring Papadopoulos to become, uh, to help with this energy project and says he gives him a retainer, retainer $10,000 a month, hands him $10,000 in cash in a suitcase. Now, I don't know how many of you listeners are, you know, consultants, but you don't usually get paid with a suitcase full of cash. Papadopoulos, kind of nervous about it, goes, oh, this seems weird. Then they fly from Israel back over to Greece. And in Greece, this Tawil guy, who again is a CIA, FBI operative and informant, 
leads him not to the common business community where people go in, in Greece all the time. They go to Cyprus, to some small village, where he sees Tawil paying a Vietnamese woman in cash to rent rooms there. So he's making, Papadopoulos getting very worried, saying, what in the world is this? Is it an energy development thing? This sounds hokey, fake. He's worried about. So Papadopoulos wraps up this trip in Greece and decides he doesn't even want to be carrying $10,000 of cash in a suitcase so he gives it to his lawyer in Greece, leaves it with a lawyer's office in Greece, and then flies home. So he flies home. It was actually in July of 2017. And when he lands at Dulles Airport, right outside of Washington, D.C., lands at Dulles Airport, he is intercepted before he even gets to customs by the FBI searching his luggage, most seemingly to try to find the $10,000 of cash the FBI thought he would have because they set up to wheel to hand it to him. The FBI is entrapping, trying, and then had they found that $10,000, they would have three federal charges they could bring against him because you can't bring that much money in cash without declaring it. Um, it would appear that he was a, an agent of a foreign government, the Israel, because he's working with the Israelis now, allegedly, and he wasn't registered as a, under the FARA Act, Foreign Agent Registration Act. So he, they would have him on those crimes, but he didn't have the money because he left it in Greece, because he's seeing through these people. So they're setting Papadopoulos up uh, to try to charge him. And I want to just tell you the reason it's become so suspicious. Recently, in response to a FOIA demand, Freedom of Information, it has come out, Weissman's schedule, so back to the time. So, you know, Papadopoulos is over in Greece and Israel and Greece again. Andrew Weissman, widely distrusted figure, in the FBI, part of the whole book, whole uh, story written up by Sidney Powell in her book, License to Lie, Weissman, just a scoundrel of an attorney. Um, apparently he has on his time logs, during the time that Papadopoulos is over there, Weissman's in conversation with the Cyprus Mutual Legal, using the Cyprus Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. Why is Weissman in Washington contacting the Cyprus people about legal assistance if he's not setting up Papadopoulos to get nailed when he comes back to America? And then Weissman is also using the MLAR system, the Money Laundering and Asset Recovery System. He, ha he gets into that trying to, while Weissman, Weissman's doing this, while Papadopoulos is still over there, working with the money laundering and asset recovery within the FBI. So all of this is happening at the same time. Weissman's fooling around doing all he's doing, and Papadopoulos is figuring these people are, there's something amiss here. He didn't bring the money home. They didn't catch him with it. So all he really got charged with, by the way, was the um, he apparently gave misleading answers about some meeting. I could go on and on, but I need to get to the end of the show today, and I want to make this point about this story. He is just one player, one person, one innocent victim of this massive, massive coup attempt, the attempt to destroy Pre candidate Trump, to destroy President Trump, manipulated by the FBI and trapped by the FBI, the FBI working to, to try to charge him with a crime with the money they gave to their agent to give to him. 
if there is not accountability, this is my closing point on this topic today before we turn to why it matters to you. If there is not accountability for the kind of conduct the FBI engaged in in this entire Spygate hoax, we truly will be surrendering the rule of law in America. We will be surrendering the idea of a trustworthy government with law enforcement agencies governed by law, which in this case, those law enforcement agencies were governed by the worst motives of men, the motive to for political power, to destroy a political enemy, willing to entrap an innocent person, all for the purpose of destroying their political opponent, Donald Trump. And now, my friends, why it matters to you. I hope these every week help you know why I talk about these things and why I care about them so much very quickly on the trade deals, just why they matter to you, why this matters to you. Before President Trump came along, we had dec dec decades, sorry, decades of globalism first, not America first. This, and what Trump is undoing, these were not free trade deals with a level playing field. They were tilted for developing countries and against the U.S. Trump's trade policies, next slide, why they matter. Before Trump, the globalist worldview prevailed. The world would be better off if America was not so dominant. America's prosperity has more to do with luck than, than unique right ideas for national governance. And America's prosperity has this whole idea. Yep, so that, that's good. Next one, Trump's trade policies, why they matter to you. Before Trump, we had the effect of decades of trade policies on the USA. The effect of the trade policies engaged in by Obama and the left were a gutting of U.S. manufacturing, a gutting of the United States middle class. We had prosperity for Wall Street and lawyers and economists and, and, and lawmakers decline for Main Street. So why Trump's policies matter? Because his new trade policies are reversing and upending decades of habit. Economic convulsions are going to happen. The stock market's going to be tough. We're going to get things that cost more or we can't get a hold of. This is needed to make the change to come back. We're going to have economic convulsions. We have to just move past them. And last, and why is trade policies matter to you? With America first, already manufacturing jobs are increasing in this country. It is convulsions on Wall Street and the ruling class, prosperity from Main Street. And, and this last on this policy is why they matter to you. Moving toward no tariff, no subsidies, no barriers playing field will reward the best competitors. America will produce the best competitors because America is exceptional. Free markets and free people are right ideas. They are America's best export. My very fine friends, this is America Can We Talk. I love talking with you every week. I love talking with you about why America matters. I urge you to tune back in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, right here in America Can We Talk, where we always talk truth about America. Talk. Truth about America. Can you